Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. For far too long a period of time, there has been sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. And we're finding out more and more. And you know, on this program, we for years spoke with members of the RCMP, female officers, women civilian members of the RCMP, who had been victims of sexual assault, sexual abuse, rape. And for the longest time, the RCMP pushed back and the government did nothing. I mean, the government did nothing for decades. Even in the 80s, they stopped the debate in Parliament. Sheila Copps was involved in, in the debate. I mean, that's how far back it goes. And uh, so nothing was done. And then more and more and more became a national issue. And eventually there was the class action lawsuit and the $100 million settlement. So, and we spoke with uh, first responders, not just the police, but with firefighters, women in, in, in first responder uh, roles, paramedics, told the same story over and over. You heard it on this program. So parallel to that is what's been going on in the Canadian military. And now the government is involved and the, the general staff is involved. I mean, you, you know, you follow the stories. You know what's happened. You know what's happened to senior officers. You know. And it just cannot be allowed to continue, must not be allowed to continue. And the government is taking a more proactive role. But I want to speak to somebody now who knows, who's on the inside, has been on the inside of this whole issue. Major Donna Rigwidell joins us. She's retired from the CAF, director and co-founder of SurvivorPerspectives.com. And uh, it is a program, frontline workshop, for members of the military and uh, SurvivorPerspectives.com, SurvivorPerspectives.com, the workshop, has already uh, dealt with 2,300 active CAF members from privates to generals. Now, the military is taking a bit of a strange position now, but we're going to talk about all of this. Major Rigwidell, how are you? I am well. Thank you for having me on. It's good to have you with us. How prevalent is sexually abusive behavior in the Canadian Armed Forces? How, pre- how prevalent? I mean, what did, what did you witness? What did you know? Um, well, I mean, speaking for myself and, and the people that I speak to, I can tell you that every woman I know that has served has a story. Um, most men also have a story. Certainly, Everybody sort of from the LGBTQ plus community has a story. This is by no means a woman's only issue. This is, you know, right across the board. Even in the last um, StatsCan survey, we saw that, you know, um, peer-to-peer sort of aggression, um, male male survivors were, you know, actually a higher number than, than females. So we know that it's not just women. We know that it's affecting everybody. And it's, um, of course, now it's gotten to the point where it has become a national security issue. Um, members of your group, I, I want to be careful what I say. You, you please, you talk about what you want to talk about about your life. I, I want to be careful what I say. Sure. You, you and members of your group, they're formed survivorperspective.com. You know what you're talking about personally, yes? Yes. Yeah. So it, our group started, there was about four or five of us. Um, we were all um, women, all survivors, uh, different ranks. We have NCMZ of officers, different trades, different elements. Um, but we all sort of got together online just with the idea of supporting each other. We had all kind of processed our injuries fairly well through, you know, therapy and, and help and everything else. But now we're just kind of dealing with, you know, as life kind of throws stuff at us. I was looking at my transition from the military. I now had word officially that I was going to be released due to PTSD. And my PTSD is specifically related to I can't do the annual fitness force test 
uh, mentally. Physically, I can. Mentally, I'm not capable of doing physical fitness while somebody stands there and evaluates me. It's directly related to being sexually assaulted at a military gym. So, yeah, we were just sort of helping each other kind of deal with, with life as we were moving through it. And then when everything sort of started to, I guess it would have been when the, we had nine, you know, very high-ranking officers in the military fall under allegations of bad behavior. And I want to be clear, not all of them had allegations of sexual assault, but it all was linked in some way or another to sexual misconduct. And it sort of dawned on all of us that it felt like the calf couldn't get out of its own way. Like Canadian forces could not get out of its own way for five minutes. Or we use the term, you know, it's snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. As soon as we take a few steps forward, we get thrown back. And the conversation between us was sort of like, you know, maybe we could help. Maybe what they need is somebody with our perspective, with our lens. And I was fortunate in that I'd taken a bunch of training, civilian side, sort of with the idea around just survivor support and affecting change in this area. And I was confident that we could build a program using our voices that, you know, maybe could reach back and help and have an impact. And initially, we just built it with the idea of, I have about a year left in uniform, let's see how many people we can help in the next year. And, you know, it just so happened we had a tremendous skill set. I have you know, clinicians in my group. I have grad students in psychology, great graphic designers. We just all got together and threw every, everything we could at this and started this. Um, so the group actually stood up in March 2021. And by June 2021, we were training. We were training people, you know, online during COVID. Um, and by the end of that time, so my last day in uniform was March 30th, 2022. And we had just gotten over about 1,500 trained. I'm just looking at this statistic, and it's amazing to listen to you. And as you were talking, I was thinking, you get into um, an environment that you care about deeply. You do this this work in the Canadian military. You become a member of the CAF because you care. You care about the country. You care about your fellow members. You care about doing things correctly. And then you run into the kind of abusive, bullying terrible behaviors you run into. So that must be that must be crushing to begin with. But then you fight back. And I just look at this. 84% of survivors reported believing that the training, and we'll talk about your workshops in a minute, but believe that the training from uh, your group, from survivors' perspectives, could have positively influenced their case had they taken the course earlier. That's a huge number. So keeping that in perspective... Keeping in perspective what you just shared with us, how were you viewed within the military generally when you and your colleagues stepped forward with your plan and your objective? So I think it's important to kind of draw, there's there's sort of two different responses that we got. Some was very supportive. I want to be really clear about that. Um, you know, we had a lot of support early on from, um, you know, the commander of the Canadian Army. At that point, it was General St. Louis. We had a lot of support from the Navy and the Air Force Command. Um, yeah, so, so early on, that started to happen. But then there was this weird sort of extra um, element that kind of moved in. And it was very strange. And at first, you know, you sort of chalked it up to being, okay, well, we're being paranoid. Um, there really seemed to be an effort to kind of shut us down. So at the same time that we were getting, you know, this incredible feedback in that, you know, for example, 88% of people coming into the training didn't feel that they could support a survivor, um, you know, when they found out that they had a peer or subordinate or leader that had suffered this kind of injury and leaving 98% now say they could. So that's, that's another really great number. Um, and we couldn't understand why there just seemed to be this sort of campaign against us or where it was coming from. So at first, again, you sort of start to think, okay, I'm just being paranoid. It's, it's, you know, all in my head. But no, it really started to kind of come into focus that we started to get some concrete pushback and a lot of barriers. Like, um, totally understood that the Canadian Forces would want to vet any training that comes forward naturally. You want to make sure that your people are being trained appropriately and, and by skilled and qualified people. But normally groups, you know, would have to go through a vetting one time you know, and, and they sort of get endorsed. We've been vetted twice and actually we're just had a third review in November. We've given, um, you know, rather than just giving our coursework, we gave, we were asked to give open access to everything we had. And we did um, happily because in our way of looking at it was, you know, we wanted to be really transparent about everything that we were trying to do. Um, and then we had people, you know, we had an intellectual property review, for example, because I, I was still in transition, so I was still technically serving when I, when I, you know, created this. So there was a concern that this program wasn't mine, that it could belong to the CAF. 
Um, and intellectual property view, from what I understood from the evaluator, takes about two weeks normally. Mine took four months. So there was just sort of a really bizarre kind of um, incomprehensible effort to sort of squash us and keep it, this down. And, and we didn't understand it. We still don't understand it. Just uh, major, just reading a uh, an endorsement from a major general in the forces. The Frontline Workshop Uniform Sexual Trauma First Aid and Intervention Course was focused in part on dispelling the myths surrounding the sexual misconduct crisis in the Canadian Armed Forces, but more specifically on providing tools to be used by leaders and supervisors. There's another endorsement. So please share with us, please, what that course, what that workshop does. How did you devise it? Sure. So um, I'm very fortunate to work with um, the Alberta Association of Sexual Assault Services. They have a first responder uh, course. It's a two-day course, and all it's designed for is how do you support somebody at first disclosure. So the first time that somebody says this terrible thing happened to me, how can you verbalize that support and how can you make sure that you're using a survivor-centered, trauma-informed way um, about how you go about what you're going to do for them? Um, their course, of course, is very centered on children because that's primarily who takes it as people that's gonna, that are going to be working with children. So we took the skills from that and then put it into a military construct. Along with that, I was able, fortunate to work with people um, from Dr. Jackson Cass's company in the States. He does a lot of work on bystander engagement and on sort of eliminating the toxic culture that supports this kind of behavior. And then we just looked at it really honestly and said, you know what, one of the reasons why a lot of the training hasn't worked so far going in is because they've looked at it as a discipline problem and as a military problem. If discipline was the key to this, we would already have beaten it. Um, we, you cannot mandate people to behave better or to behave more ethically towards each other, and you can't discipline it away. This isn't a military problem, and I know that sounds very strange because, of course, we're talking about this in a military construct, but we recruit sexual predators into the CAP. They're, they're represented in society, and we bring them in, and then once they join, they find sort of this culture that supports and nurtures them. So rather than look at it in terms of, you know, we can punish it out of them or, or we can, you know, work on really hard on arresting, you know, the bad elements, could we flip that on its script a little bit and look at it in terms of, okay, even if we get to 98% of, you know, no sexual predation in the calf, we know there's still going to be people injured in this way. We know that going in. So how about if we look at it in terms of this kind of injury shouldn't cost somebody their career, that when you have somebody who volunteers to serve in in uniform, you should be able to support them and help them heal. Now, they'll always have a scar, but it won't define them, that they'll still have all of the potential they had originally. They'll still be the strong person, that the qualified, you know, officer, soldier, sailor, aviator, that they, that they were before it happened. What if we could do that? And that's sort of how we built it was, let's make it so that this is very similar to first aid, that if somebody, if your peer, subordinate, or leader is injured, let's patch them up and get them to further help and therefore not lose them to this injury. Yeah. I'm just reading, you know, as you're speaking, I'm reading some of the commentary that follows along with the workshop. After taking the frontline workshop, 83% of respondents said they felt capable and prepared to intervene as a bystander. 83%. So, and you've worked with more than 2,300 Department of National Defense members in just over 18 months, from private to general. So, so what's happening now? What's, what's the, uh, who's closing the doors? Um, you know, it, it's, it's really kind of coming at a very high level. It's coming at the very top. So, you know, the people at the L1, uh, the people that are responsible for sort of implementing these changes, even though they, there's definitely you know, the, the script that's coming out is they're saying, no, there will be no barriers to training, you know, that they, you know, you cannot expect the, the cast to have training for this, you know, commanders and CEOs need to be empowered to find, you know, local providers or, or consultants that they can work with to bring training in that their members need. But at the same time, you know, we've had so many barriers thrown up. Like we've just had two courses run. One was in November and one was in December. And both of them were nearly shut down. One of them was shut down until uh, the Brigadier General at this organization actually intervened on our behalf and said, like, what exactly is the reason that you want to shut this down? And then all of a sudden, you know, there was kind of like a backing off of it. Um, the same thing happened. We went to a Peace Support Training Center in Kingston and, and did a fantastic serial there. It was very well received. Um, and then they said, well, we'd like to have you back. You know, we want to do more. And then that's also been sort of shut down now. And, and honestly, at this point, it's kind of a mystery to us, too. I've sent over an official query 
uh, last week and has said, you know, I'd really like to know, is there, you know, something, some gap that we're not seeing? Is there a deficiency in our program that you'd like us to address? You know, what is the issue here? And I'm, and I'm hopeful that we'll get an answer back because at this point I'm at a loss. We've been, uh, we've opened all of our books. We've let everybody, you know, we've, we've let the evaluators sit through the training multiple times. They've been given access to everything we've had. We have, you know, statistics that most people would, would pretty much die for on the, on the course. We, it's proven to have a positive impact on people. We've had, you know, even longitudinal anecdotal, but people reach back after and say this training made a huge difference in supporting, you know, this person that came forward or, or when I was addressing this policy or anything else. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure, because it would be my thought that if you had a problem that was this wicked, that was this hard to grip, well, why wouldn't you throw everything you had at it? And there just seems to be reluctance to, to do this. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and author of Next. If you want to know what's going to be happening next in this country of ours, get Daryl's book, read it, and then reread it. That's what I'm doing anyway. So, uh, Daryl, great to have you with us. It's the year ender, and if I may begin with a poll that Ipsos did exclusively for Global News, and it was released on the 7th of December, and I'll just quote from it. Canadians continue to feel the pinch from the economic downturn and high inflation rates for everyday items, and a new Ipsos poll conducted exclusively for Global News finds that Canadians see further hard times looming on the horizon. 86% express concern that Canada will face an economic recession within the next year, and a thirty further thirty-seven percent of Canadians say they're very concerned. Those are big numbers. How are you? I'm doing well, Roy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, great to uh, have you with us. Can you just give us some perspective on that particular poll? Well, you know, recessions and inflation and all these things—you know, economist terms that people throw out there—are not business page stories when it comes to the lives of everyday Canadians. Uh, everyday Canadians, for them, it's a state of mind. Are they feeling confident or are they not? And every time, actually, the, the, the scenarios that you rolled out there, every time that you go to the grocery store or the gas station or any or pay your mortgage, for example, are you feeling like things are getting better? Are they getting more expensive for you? And right now, people are feeling that they're getting worse and more expensive. So regardless of what's going on in terms of the actual economic numbers, that state of mind that Canadians have right now is very short-term and pessimistic. Yeah. 86% of Canadians agreeing on anything or having the same concern is an extremely high number. Um, what's of greater concern to Canadians today at the end of 2022, Daryl? Is it health care or the economy, or are they pretty close to being tied? Uh, pretty, pretty close to being tied. I would say health care is more of a longer-term concern. People are really wondering whether the health care system that they thought that they could count on for their future is going to be there. So it's you know more about what's going to happen over the longer term. But the economic concerns are right in people's everyday lives today. Uh, COP15 is underway in Montreal. It's going to be closing uh, down in, in two days. A lot has come out of that particular uh, conference. We're going to be speaking with Professor Charlebaugh about some of it. But uh, polling concerns that you did, or at least polling you did at Ipsos, shows concerning, uh, or at least environmental considerations internationally, a growing skepticism about human-caused climate change. Could you speak to us about that? Is that a, is that a significant trend, or is it just something relatively minor? Uh, well, I'd say in terms of people thinking that human-caused climate change uh, is um, you know not taking place. I would say a vast majority of the population is actually on the other side of that, where they think that you know humans are um, somehow implicated in what's happening with the climate, and they are concerned about the climate. But when you look at the uh, top 20 issues that we track on a global basis, uh, you know, in 30 plus countries, including Canada, it's it's a pretty middle tier issue, and particularly of late as we've gone through COVID, and then COVID's re- been replaced by economic concerns. The, the climate issue is, is taken more of a backseat. It's not that people don't care about it or aren't concerned about it. It's just that there's more immediate things that people are really focused on. Yeah. You, you did a poll at Ipsos for the Montreal Economic Institute, and we talked to them about that particular poll, and we found a, a majority of Canadians unwilling to pay more to combat climate change while simultaneously supporting pipelines over rail and other transport for oil 
Where does that fit, Daryl? This is a repeat finding when it comes to Quebecers. Well, this is this is yeah. although this is na- nationwide, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But Quebecers are particularly interesting on the uh, on the issue of pipelines because they don't feel they need oil and gas, even though they use a lot of it because of their situation uh, with uh, with hydro. Uh, they feel that because the you know, hydroelectric power is a, even an exportable asset in Quebec, uh, that you know they really don't need oil and gas. But that's a fallacy. Uh, the 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 problem that we have in Canada is the minute that you move beyond the question of should do we care about this the answer is yes uh, should somebody do something about it yes um, should governments do something about it yes should business do something about it yes should people do something about it yes should you do something about it uh, I'm not so sure <laughs> so are you willing to pay more for this yeah. no yeah uh, are you willing to change your lifestyle significantly for it no. Uh, and that's where the rubber hits the road on all of this, is that beyond just that kind of superficial sense that maybe something needs to be done for most Canadians, what needs to be done, and particularly their role in it, is obscure for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, politicians need to take particular note of this sort of sentiment. I'm going to ask you, uh, obviously, political questions in our next segment, but uh, it, am, I, am I correct in saying that politicians in this country, and you and I talked a few weeks ago possibility of a federal election in 2023. Am I correct in saying politicians ought to pay particular attention to that that piece of information? Yeah, I think that they should be uh, paying particularly particular attention to the, to the overall mood in Canada. I mean, uh, right now, it is a really difficult mood for anybody who's an incumbent. Probably the last politician who's going to get easily reelected is Doug Ford, but things have certainly taken a sour turn. Uh, since that election last June, and people are pretty pessimistic about things, and they're looking at their governments, and they're not feeling particularly good about them. Okay. Do you recall what we were talking about at the end of uh, of last year, the end of 2021, and what our aspirations or our, or our wishes or what Canadians were telling you they wanted for 2022? I just so happen to remember that. Oh, good. Uh, this This time last year, when you and I were talking, it was pretty much all COVID all the time. Yeah, uh, we were you know coming through our first year in which we were getting multiple vaccines. People were feeling a bit optimistic. We we're just coming. Remember, we we're just around the time of Omicron, and we were starting to make our way just out of that as we went into the uh, as we went into the, uh, uh, the the Christmas season. People were really worried about that, but they were feeling a little bit more optimistic on the other side of it. And what's happened over the space of the last year is that the economy has basically replaced. The, uh, the COVID pandemic is the number one issue in people's minds. So uh, they've almost uh, replaced each other one-to-one. So last year, actually, people were feeling a bit more optimistic. This year, less so. Mm-hmm. So I asked you a few minutes ago about health care and the economy, whether they're essentially running neck and neck as far as public opinion is concerned in this country. And you said it is. Can we do a little bit more of a deep dive and, and, uh, and, and not too deep, but, you know, give us a bit of an idea of what it is Canadians are saying they want to see happen with our economy and with health care or what our aspirations are? Right. So when it comes to the economy, what people are really worried about at the moment is the cost of living. So it's some sort of relief in terms of the actual price of getting by day to day. But what we're also seeing, Roy, is that concern about jobs is starting to rise too. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, 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 there's a lot of stuff going on there and none of it is good. When it, and the difference between this and healthcare is that when people are concerned about the day-to-day aspects of, of healthcare, but aren't confronting it as, as constantly as they are uh, with anything to do with the economy, you know, every time you go to the gas station, you go to the grocery store, or you get a bill in the mail, uh, pe- people are constantly confronted with it. Healthcare is something that they know is not getting better. It's getting worse, but it's a bit more future-oriented. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, you talk about uh, taking note of what's happening. I've noticed that on days when the posted price of gasoline at a gas station is lower than it's been for maybe a week or two, there are far more cars, far more vehicles filling up. When it goes back up another three or four cents, there's room at the pumps. So we're really paying quite close attention. Uh, that's just an observational thing. It's, that's all it is. What do we, um, what do we want from our, uh, our politicians federally and provincially? 
Well, I think right now people are feeling like there's a need for a, a bit of certainty about what the future is going to look like, a sense of confidence that they've got this under control and that, you know, tomorrow isn't going to be another surprise and the, the day after that isn't going to be another surprise. So there's a sense that, you know, we're, we're, we're a bit, um, well, actually more than a bit, a, a lot uh, out of sorts these days. And what they're looking for from their politicians is, is not kind of a Pollyanna sense of certainty, but a real sense that somebody's in control. Uh, you know, as our prime minister likes to say, we have your back, but they actually feel like the political system is, and does have their back and, and, and is working for them. And at the moment, they're not really feeling that. Are we grumpy or are we unsure or a combination of the two? Uh, the unsureness is making us grumpy. So the lack of certainty about the future has is, is, is put us on edge. And when people are on edge, uh, they start to look around for somebody to blame uh, for what the situation is. And they, you know, we will say, you know, Canadians will acknowledge, you know, we have a rational conversation with them, that a lot of some of these things are, you know, driven by what's happening externally. Uh, you know, it's, it's, what's happening in the economy isn't just a Canadian issue, but um, they can't really do anything about what's happening in other places. So they turn to the places where they could have an effect, and that's their own politicians. Yeah. Would you advise, and we talked about the potential of a federal election in 2023, it's been talked about, rumored. Would you advise political parties to uh, abstain from forcing an election, or would 2023 be a Time to go for it. Well, you saw what happened um, when we went for our last election in 2021, um, when uh, people were feeling that there really wasn't much of a reason to have one. What should have been a cakewalk for Justin Trudeau turned into almost a rout. Uh, In fact, you know, Aaron O'Toole did better against Justin Trudeau than Andrew Scheer did in the previous election. Uh, when, you, when you just look at the vote percentages and, and, and how, it, how it worked out, particularly in the province of Ontario. Uh, but, um, um, you know, J- Justin Trudeau walked into that election without having a really good reason for it taking place, and, and people did punish him, mm-hmm. um, you know, with another minority government. This time around, if they decide that they want to go in the spring or the summer of next year, um, or in 2023, unless he's got a really good reason for doing it, there was probably a pretty good lesson wrapped up in the 2021 election. Okay. In the minute we have left, uh, Daryl, it deserves much more than that. But what's your takeaway from 2022? Yours? Yeah, it was it was a pretty grim year. I mean, a lot of things happened. You know, everything from the war in Ukraine to the, uh, you know, explosion of, uh, of, of interest rates and, uh, you know, economic concerns that we haven't seen. But I can't remember back to, you know, till. 2008 was the last time we saw anything like this. Uh, we've moved into a real period of uncertainty, and you just feel like changes on the horizon, that people are going to be demanding a certain amount of change. So I think two, 2023 could be a, a really pivotal year uh, that could make a difference for not just next year, but for the next decade. February 24 of uh, this year, the Russians invaded Ukraine. We knew it was coming, even though... Uh, they had 100,000 troops massed on the Russia-Ukraine border, and Putin kept saying it's not going to happen. But the world knew it was, and the conventional wisdom appeared to be, from so many experts, that within a week, the Russians would overrun Ukraine, and Kiev would be in their hands, and maybe 72 hours. Well, here we are, 10 months later, and none of that has happened. Well, they did, in fact, the Russians did take over some territory in Ukraine, however, Their military has been absorbing loss after loss after loss on the ground. They're being pushed back and pushed further back because the Ukraine military, with the assistance of weaponry from the West, is absolutely formidably dealing with Putin's military. Now, there's talk that he may be throwing another 200,000 troops into some sort of offensive in, uh, in the new year. But based on what we've seen and what we know, they're probably going to run into the same situation that the uh, earlier Russian troops ran into as Western weaponry that gets to Ukraine is more sophisticated. Uh, Joe Biden talking about the uh, Patriot missile system, missile defense system for Ukraine. So uh, as the Ukrainian military is driving the Russians back on the ground, Putin and his generals are using, as you know, and as you've heard, missiles particularly and drones to assault and attack the energy infrastructure that fuels civilian 
water, heat, light. As winter arrives, which in and of itself should be, as experts have told us on this program, defined as a war crime. Well, let's talk about what's going on. I should mention this as well. Canada was under significant and I think, I believe, absolutely appropriate um, criticism when earlier in the year the Trudeau government revoked sanctions on uh, the Nord Stream, at least sanctions against Russia, and la- allowed Nord Stream turbines or turbines to be uh, to be sent from Montreal, from Siemens in Montreal, to Germany ostensibly, and then through the Germans to the Russians, so that they could uh, fix the Nord Stream pipeline. None of that happened, as you know. It was just a bogus situation that this country just fell for. So now the uh, federal government is revoking the sanctions exemption. How about that? We have spoken many times with uh, Ambassador Alexander Sherba and um, former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria, former Ukraine ambassador at large, was part of the diplomatic mission in the United States. He's the author of Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. And when Ambassador Sherba joins us on this program, it's very late at night for him. And he's done that for months on this program. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Roy. Thank you for inviting me again. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that we can speak with you because what we're seeing happening in, in Ukraine now with the missile attacks on the infrastructure is absolutely outrageous. It, it, is, it is a war crime. Uh, as We've been told that on this program. So can you give us a sense of what is taking place? How is it affecting the men, the women, the children, particularly the women, the children? Most of your men are fighting against the Russians. How is it affecting your civilian population? Oh, uh, I was listening to your weather forecast uh, in Canada. We have practically the same weather here, uh, uh, so five or six below zero, maybe uh, ten through the night. And uh, during this week, uh, many Ukrainian cities and towns, including mine, Kiev, were without heating, without electricity. Uh, without uh, any connection due to this latest barbaric uh, missile strike. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it uh, has become already a kind of routine. Uh, and fortunately, very fortunately, we have absolutely heroic uh, people in our energy sphere who within hours are capable to uh, restore uh, the electricity supply, first of all, uh, throughout the country, and uh, thank God, um, so the situation without heating, it was um, uh, for two or three days, so it was cold in the apartment, but not uh, uh, not devastatingly, this devastating situation. So we we are coping with this, and we're understanding that if Ukrainian soldiers are capable to fight the whole year without heating, without running water, without uh, electricity, then the least, the least that we civilians uh, owe them is uh, to go through, through this winter without complaining and to doing our part. You really are amazing people, remarkable people, and you're teaching the rest of us what, um, what we all need to understand. Not only are your lights out and the, and the heating is off and it's cold and winter is coming, but you're doing it under incessant missile attack. On your, on, on your cities and on your towns. And on Thursday, I believe, in one of these missile attacks, a toddler was, was killed, murdered um, by, this, by, the, by the Russians. And, and that, that is such an outrage. Does the world, is the world doing enough? I know you're receiving weapon systems that you need and you're receiving moral support, but is the world doing enough, Alexander? Well, I don't want to sound ungrateful. The world is doing a lot and... Uh, I always say that uh, if uh, Putin is the new Hitler, then Ukraine is the new Poland that wasn't abandoned by the world. And partly because of that, we are capable of fighting back. But especially right now, it's very obvious that what we are lacking is more uh, air defense systems for civilians and uh, uh, offensive uh, weapons uh, for our army, uh, our 
uh, Commander-in-Chief General uh, Valery Zaluzhny gave uh, a very interesting interview this week, uh, highly, highly recommendable and very, very sobering. Uh, so he says that uh, Russians are getting ready for something big. Uh, he is uh, confident that they will try at least once again <clears throat> to conquer Kiev. Uh, but he is also very, very confident that uh, within the next uh, three, four months, uh, Ukraine can beat this enemy uh, as long as uh, a certain amount of uh, weapons is provided. And he is giving the numbers, and the numbers are not really, you know, skyrocketing. Yes, it would be the biggest army in Europe, but if the decent countries of the world uh, uh, each would provide uh, a couple of tanks, a couple of, uh, you know, armored vehicles, uh, howitzers, then it, it would be more than enough. Uh, and uh, that's what we need right now. Yeah, it's a fight for survival. That's what it is. And, and you know, if you look back, let's go back to February when, when the Russians first assaulted and invaded Ukraine. I can't imagine what the emotional response was. This is the immediate emotional response of the people must have been just, um, well, I, 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 I'm just guessing. So I don't want to do that. But if you look back 10 months and you look at the performance of your military, your Ukrainian military, which I, at the beginning was really just fighting with what you already had. You had a few things that were given to, given to you that were sent to you, but you really didn't have what you needed. And yet you stood up and you fought back and the world admired. We saw the video of Russian tanks being blown up by soldiers who had just become soldiers carrying a shoulder arm or shoulder um, shoulder fired missile system and uh, so 10 months later did you expect logically did you expect the kind of success that the Ukraine military has experienced and continues to experience well uh, i was more optimistic than most people um, because i knew that ukraine had from 150 to 200,000 experienced uh, combat uh, probed combat uh, combat hardened uh, soldiers from uh, uh, the last eight years since uh, the fighting in Donbass started and then you I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who fought in in uh, 19 in uh, 2014 2015 and he was all, almost ecstatic about you know he was saying let them come we will show them you won't believe we'll retake uh, Donbass and we'll retake Crimea. And I was, I was like, what are you saying? This is Russia. It's huge. It's enormous. He says, yeah, um, the one in a war, the one country uh, that decides is ready, uh, wins that is ready to die. Yes. And we are ready to die because it's our country. What would uh, Russians be ready to die? Uh, for this occupation, for, you know, some ideas, uh, voices in Putin's head. Uh, it was about motivation, about about spirit. So I was a little bit more optimistic than others after this particular conversation, quite frankly. But, of course, you know, uh, I didn't expect this emotional roller coaster. Russians are uh, within days, uh, within 20 kilometers from Kiev downtown, then um, this whole genocide starts uh, yeah. uh, in Kiev's vicinity, vicinity. Then uh, Russians uh, get uh, thrown back uh, to their territory. Then uh, Mariupol, oh God, this year was horrible on so many levels and in so many locations in Ukraine. But it was also a proud moment, and especially, and uh, first of all, uh, due to heroism of our army. You know, I've spoken to friends, and I've said to them, look out at your city. Look out wherever you are in this country now. I'll say this to everybody listening to this program. Look at your neighborhood. Look at your city. Look at your town. Look at your village. Wherever you are, look at the infrastructure, the stores, the buildings, just what you have that's around you every day and is there for you. Now, imagine 10 months of military assault on what you have. Imagine what your town would look like, your city would look like, under constant missile attack. That is what the people of Ukraine are living with, and that is why they're fighting, and they're fighting, and they're winning. You need battle tanks. The, the Germans have hundreds, maybe thousands. I don't know. I read 
all sorts of numbers. I'm not sure which one is correct, but they have these battle tanks that are just sitting. Nobody's doing anything with them. They're just they're not in use. There are no plans for them. They should just send them out to uh, to your military and let the uh, the Russians taste the uh, the barrel end of the thing. Well, quite frankly, it's a mysterious uh, situation uh, because uh, Germans are saying we are ready to send these tanks. Good. Uh, as it. long as uh, Americans are sending theirs. And quite, uh, it's, it's a double question for me, uh, quite frankly, why Germans are not really doing what has to be done and just looking at Americans. But also a question why other countries, Americans, or I don't know, or maybe Canada, maybe if someone else, anyone, sends at least one, two, three modern tanks uh, to Ukraine, then Germans don't have this, you know, excuse of not sending uh, leopards uh, to uh, Ukraine. So it would be my uh, urgent call to all decent nations of the world, and Canada is definitely one of those, to maybe consider, you know, um, doing it together with Germans, just giving, giving this uh, thanks to Ukraine. Yeah, it's about survival, your survival. And your people, yes, absolutely, the people of Ukraine. Tell us about um, about how your president Volodymyr Zelensky is viewed within Ukraine, Alexander. Well, I think uh, one of the mistakes uh, that Putin made uh, before attacking and when attacking Ukraine was underestimating uh, both Volodymyr Zelensky and the people of Ukraine. Uh, Putin knew very well, and who was exploited it for, I don't know, for, for, for as long as he was president. Uh, the, the passion uh, that uh, Ukrainians have uh, towards uh, their politicians. And uh, unfortunately, we <clears throat> had a very, very painful polarization in the country uh, on the eve of the war. Uh, the uh, 2019- uh, on, on the eve of the active phase of the war, the war started in 2014, actually. Um, so the uh, presidential election 2019 was effectively never over uh, for many people. Many people got stuck in that election and didn't accept Zelensky as the president because they saw, saw him too soft on Russia. They couldn't deal with the fact that uh, an actor and not a politician became a president. So um, Putin was thinking that once, um, once, uh, how do you say it so diplomatically, something hits the fan, uh, Ukrainians will uh, start quarreling and uh, uh, everything will fall apart uh, because, because these two groups were so, you know, polarized uh, within the population. And then we saw a president who was ready to make history, you know, and it's very... It's not only in his personality. Um, it's uh, uh, you know, in today's world, uh, government is just a um, service uh, to um, serve people, right? Uh, to 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 make sure that all services are running, that the heating is there, that the food is on the table, that. Uh, salaries coming, so on and so forth. The politicians get elected to do that and not to make history. And this guy was ready to do both. Uh, and to make history, it was what he is doing uh, since February 24th. And most Ukrainians are extremely appreciative of that. And uh, the most... Uh, uh, trusted um, uh, in Ukraine is Ukrainian army, of course, but on the second place is uh, Ukrainian president with eighty something percent. For Ukraine, is it's uh, unbelievable. We we have literally ten seconds. Are you confident about twenty twenty three? I'm confident that we'll win. Uh, at what point? I don't know. I don't know. It's very very difficult to predict. An overarching issue this year has been the issue of food. Food security, food uh, cost with inflation, food inflation, as our next guest has told us repeatedly, outpacing general inflation. And uh, there has been uh, so much talk about food 
and, and where we're headed. So here we are doing the final live program for 2022. And I'm glad that our guest uh, is back with us, Professor Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. And uh, Sylvain, thank you for, for joining us. Um, what are you having for Christmas dinner? Actually, we don't know yet. <laughs> it's a good question. We're, we're being hosted. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but the one thing, so we're being hosted by my brother, but the one thing that, uh, that uh, he has asked to do this year is to bring a dish, and everyone actually has to bring a dish, sort of a potluck, a Christmas potluck. And I suspect that we're not alone. A lot of people uh, will recognize that hosting this year is going to cost a lot of money. So everyone is being asked to pitch in. Yeah, yeah. You should have just said, mind your own business, Green. <laughs> well, hey, it's, it's Christmas. Everyone, it's Christmas. you know, everyone actually is celebrating, which yeah, is great. And yeah. and is I mean, if you go back twelve months ago, we were going through this Omicron storm. Uh, everyone was getting sick. Uh, there were shutdowns everywhere. So this year, it's, I think it's going to be a little bit, you know, more cheery, if you will. Yeah, I, I certainly hope it is. It's going to be difficult for many people, as we know, and we have this phenomenon that we've been hearing about, particularly over the last day or two, the stories have been coming out about shoplifting increasing in retail and shoplifting in, in, in grocery stores. Does, what does that say to you, that the shoplifting taking place in grocery stores? Is, it's, it's bigger than just that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, of course, uh, only use anecdotal evidence, getting data about shoplifting is, is very difficult. But uh, if you talk to grocers, they're seeing an increase in the number of cases. Uh, uh, so even some inside jobs, like employees of grocery stores, are, are stealing as well, unfortunately. Um, the, there is a strong correlation between uh, higher food prices and, uh, and theft, unfortunately. And, and grocers tend to change tactics. For example, uh, you may walk into a grocery store, yes, you'll find security guards uh, at the entrance, but sometimes they'll actually hire mystery shoppers dressed up uh, in civilian clothes. You wouldn't know they're security guards, but they are, and they roam around the store all day long. And that's one way they actually uh, use to uh, deter theft, and it's actually it, it, it's it, typically it's quite effective. Yeah, the, this whole idea about shoplifting at grocery stores at this particular time speaks to me about the the issue of inflation and the issue of interest rates and the difficulty people have uh, putting the, you know the money together for what they need to buy. You know, we we know from polling, and people are tired of hearing this, but it's fact. Uh, it's been repeated time and again, year after year. It's repeated. So many Canadians, half the population, within two hundred dollars, are not a, not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. So that, I think that's the big picture: the inflationary trend, the interest rates, the shortage of money, and and you know, the need to eat. And people resort to tactics. They I'm not excusing anything. I'm just saying people resort to tactics they otherwise wouldn't. Um, when when it comes to the Canada Canada's food price report for 2023 which I was trying to get out of you before you released it, and you, you wouldn't tell me anything, yeah. <laughs> from the Agri-Food <laughs> Analytics Lab. Now I can ask you, as we look forward into 2023, I'm seeing here that Canadian families will spend up to $1,065 more on food next year. Can you walk us through what the highlights of the, uh, of the report are? Yeah, so we were hoping, so this report is produced by, uh, by us, Dalhousie, but we have the support of, uh, of the University of Guelph, uh, the University of Saskatchewan, and uh, the University of British Columbia. And uh, so we've been doing this for 13 years now. It's been great. Uh, so we, we meet together. We try to forecast what's going to happen to food prices over the next 12 months. After this year, we are hoping to uh, bring some good news to Canadians. Um, unfortunately, uh, we're looking at uh, another year, uh, another challenging year when it comes to food prices. We're expecting the first half of 2022 to be uh, to to be somewhat similar to what we've experienced in 2022, uh, an increase of say five seven percent in terms of food prices. So for a family of four. 
typically you would probably need to spend a thousand dollars, a thousand one hundred dollars more to buy the same thing you would you would buy in twenty twenty two, unfortunately. But the second half looks better, much better. Things will be calmer. Supply chains are are are, are much are becoming more efficient. Uh, there's an economic downturn coming. We are expecting that to hit the market. Uh, probably in the middle of the summer, that's going to calm things down. And uh, and grocers, when they know people have less money to to spend, they'll they'll be more careful when when raising prices. So things would look more positive uh, in the second half of 2023. Well, that's that's good to know. But a thousand sixty five or a thousand dollars, eleven hundred dollars, whatever it works out to, those are after tax dollars for Canadian consumers, after tax dollars, and that's in that's in in addition to what you paid in 2022, when inflation was already outpacing, food inflation was already outpacing general inflation. But you mentioned uh, grocery stores, repeated questions, and they surfaced again over the last few days, repeated questions about profits earned by major food store chains. Could you speak to that, please, and the issue of CEOs not appearing before Parliament? I don't think that was a good move. I was there. Uh, so on December 5th, we were releasing our, our report. But on the same day, I was actually in Ottawa testifying. And I was expecting uh, both uh, CEOs, uh, Loblaws and Empire to show up, or at least on screen. They never did. They actually sent in their financial gurus, and that's it. And I was a little bit disappointed because... I, I think both you and I spoke about this uh, many times this year. We don't believe uh, that greenflation is a thing in retail, in food retail. There, there are some issues up the food chain, but in food retail, we don't believe there's, there's abuse. However, uh, I actually do think grocers are, are, are fielding a, a consumer trust crisis here. A lot of people think that they're gouging. A lot of people think that they're they're um, they're uh, playing turkeys in grocery stores, and they 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 should have showed up at least show some distancing respect towards Parliament. Uh, I did show up, of course, as an analyst and as a as a, as an academic. I was glad to answer questions, but I think they 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 made the mistake not showing up at all. Yeah, it's a bigger story if you don't show up than if you do. If you don't show up, exactly. then people want to know why didn't you show up? Why exactly? Why and and I think a lot of the questions. Uh, I suspect if Mr. Galen Weston or Michael Medline, the CEO of Empire, would have been able to answer. Essentially, it boils down to this. Consumers need to know they're not being gouged, especially when the inflation rate is at 10%. And so you need to really be transparent as much as possible. Yeah, and you really need to communicate with people at this time particularly. There are not people, Canadians, me included, we're not going to be uh, sitting by and just, you know, taking some... Um, I don't know, some few lines written by a communications expert who really doesn't care or wait about how exactly. we receive it, right? Um, so yeah. we're talking about government. You and I have talked about government and government investment and caring about the agri-sector, which is massive in this country. Uh, throughout the year, we talked about it. So what's your sense as we end 2022, Sylvain, about the federal government's understanding of and commitment to the agri-sector in Canada? Okay, that says it all. Thank you. <laughs> it's uh, there's a huge question mark. To be honest, I, I think I think Ottawa needs to take some time to understand agriculture. It's it's driven by urban politics. Um, most of the decisions that we've seen out of Ottawa in 2022 undermine farmers, uh, undermine uh, food processors, and, and you, you, you just feel that they don't think things through at all. Uh, for example, the, the the tariff on Russian fertilizers last spring, uh, I certainly appreciate the geopolitics behind the decision, but I mean, at the end of the day, we basically took $34 million from our own farmers. Uh, and now we heard from Christian Finland last week that they were, that she was taking the $34 million and she was going to send that money to Ukraine to rebuild. Now, I think everyone is happy that we're helping Ukraine, but slapping a tariff on farmers, they were hit financially. And those tariffs didn't do a darn thing um, on on Russia. It didn't affect negatively at all Russia. 
And so you, you do wonder what is going on. Why don't they think uh, about um, unintended consequences when it comes to policy? It, it's something that I'm hoping that things are going to change. Now, they just announced a, a new round of, of, of discussions about sustainability, sustainable agriculture, so they'll be talking to different stakeholders. That, that's a good sign. So at least they're making an effort to talk to farmers, to talk to people out there. Yeah, they just they just don't get it, though, when it comes to to agriculture and the agri-sector and uh, farmers. No, they're, just, they're just not making an effort. No, they're not. That's here. the thing. Yeah, all, yeah, just yeah. All, all we're asking is just to make an effort yeah. and come out and talk to farmers, talk to groups. They understand what's going on out there. Yeah, you're going to get some of that stuff on the bottom of your Gucci, so you... <laughs> You can't do that, right? You have to roll up your pant cuffs so that you, <laughs> if you go to the farm. You know, go see how real people live. Go see how the people exactly. live who feed the rest of us and, and respect them and don't pick their pockets. Provide them with assistance. They're feeding everybody else, for God's sake. Take, you know, be thankful that they're doing it. That's exactly. Just, anyway. Speaking of feeding, Roy, what are you having for Christmas this year? Mind your own business. <laughs> I I <laughs> live and learn. Live and learn. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a wonderful dinner served to me by a wonderful Good. by a wonderful person. So there you go. Marvelous. Yeah. Take advantage of it. Take some oh, time off. Enjoy your family and friends. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to it. So now, when it comes to um, food, COP15 ends in two days. You wrote an op-ed, which was titled, Cops 15, COP15's Absurd Proposed Planetary Diet. So they're, they're after uh, reducing animal protein consumption. Just walk us through what you, what you want us to know about this. Well, I mean, uh, when, when you look at COP15 uh, on biodiversity, you thought, well, well you think that they'll, they'll be looking at, at oceans, Forest, things like that, but there, there is a food systems uh, segment uh, in in the, in the conference, and they actually have motions uh, related to systems. One of them is called diet and consumption, and it it, uh, it, it attracted my attention, so I looked in. Basically, in the motion, they're they're asking members to uh, vote on this motion to adopt this uh, the the Eat Lancet diet, which really recommends uh, a a significant decrease in consumption animal protein consumption. So instead of looking at the cane diet, where uh, frankly uh, I would say. 35, 40% of your diet would be, uh, would be animal proteins, and that would include eggs, uh, dairy, uh, meat products, uh, fish and seafood. Uh, they're, they're looking at reducing that percentage to 10% instead. And uh, when, you think about, when you think about what's going on in the U.S. or Canada or Australia and other places, uh, I mean, our, our industry, a lot of it relies production of animal proteins and and of course the idealists uh, extremists uh, ecological extremists are looking at the diet saying I think we need to get the state involved here we need to get the government involved and asking people to reduce the amount of meat they consume. And I think it's a dangerous place to go. As soon as you actually allow the government into our kitchens, a lot of things can go wrong, and uh, and that's what we're at right now. And and the other thing that I saw at COP15 is that a lot of environmentalist groups don't want uh, crop life, which represents uh, Bayer, Syngenta, the big companies offering solutions to our farmers. They actually want those companies to be excluded from talks. But in reality, I've always believed that these groups are absolutely uh, environmentalists. They, they, they look at the environment in a very important manner. It's just they don't look at things the same way. They don't look at the same solutions. Yeah. So the same people, the EU is supporting this. So the same people who developed their own energy crisis are now working on developing a food crisis. Well, that's clever. 
<laughs> well, yeah, you can actually certainly put it that way. But I'm concerned, Roy, to be honest. I think it's important to remind us ourselves that food is, is about culture. Food is history. Yes, Food is about traditions and friends and family, and the social aspect of food is very, very important. You can't just ask people to reduce their their annual protein. I think, I think the dairy sector, the beef sector, they're all aware of what's going on with climate change. And they, yeah, we're losing you. We're, so, we're, we're uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, and we're just about out of time too. So, um, but um, we, just, I, these groups are doing some wonders and they're making changes, and so we need to be patient here. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.